0: Good morning to you. How are we doing today? It's good to see you. Couple things for you as we get rolling this morning. First of all, uh, Friday night was awesome. For those of you that were able to make it out, uh, we had our first core class on Friday night called How to Study Your Bible, and we're doing some intensives and we're doing some classes. And so this was an intensive. And for those of you that were there, you uh, completely would agree that the word intensive describes what we went through Friday night. But I'm just proud of our church that 300 people would show up on a Friday night for a three hour class on how to study your Bible. And so thank you for doing that. We are incredibly excited about where that's going to take us, and so uh, many of you have asked, "Are we going to, did we record that?" and the answer is yes, and so're we 're going to work on making sure that that's understandable uh, from a recording standpoint and then others of you have asked if we're going we 're going to give that option again that class again, and the answer is most likely yes as we head into the fall we 're going to work to have that on the calendar again and so if you missed out on Friday night because you had plans and different things like that. Uh, we are going to work to make that available for you again. And that launches what we're calling our core classes. And so uh, there's another option coming in the fall as well that we talked about on Friday night. And that will be, we're going to spend 10 weeks and we're going to go deeply into the gospel. And Matt, Pastor Matt and Pastor Mike Graham, who led us on Friday night, will be teaching that. And that'll be on Thursdays in the fall. And so be looking for that. We're going to have different options for you to be able to be part of that. Uh, We'll have a class in the morning and then a class kind of mid-morning, a class at lunch, and a class after work. And so wherever your schedule works, uh, maybe you need to switch it up as you go to hit each one. We're going to try to make it as accessible as we possibly can as we head into the fall for our core classes. And so thanks for being part of that with us on Friday night. Uh, Matt, this morning, is in Cleveland. He is running the Cleveland Marathon Uh, For those of you that are wondering where he is And so he told me that when I got up in the 8 o'clock service around 8.30 That he should be about halfway done with the marathon, give or take How he's feeling this morning Uh, And so I just discovered as I came in here that he was on mile 20 of 26 And so he's making it And apparently he is blowing away his personal record right now Um, And so I'm doing my part Uh, This morning I had two cups of donut holes instead of one (laughs) So I'm making sure that we're covered here, all right. So uh, be praying for him uh, as he finishes that up. He'll be coming back this afternoon, and then should be back in the office tomorrow, depending on how his legs are doing. Uh, but it's an honor to be able to, to share with you this morning. Um, you know, when you're when you're looking at jobs, when you're looking at where you want to where you want to work, your boss is kind of an important part of that. And so you look at you know, who am I going to be working for? Uh, and so when I was leaving California, one of the reasons that I was able to make the move to California from the East Coast was because of my boss, Sean Thornton, was, was a reason that I was able to do that because I trusted him, his integrity was high, I knew that he was the same person off the platform as he was on the platform. He was going to be in the Bible, he was going to pray, he was going to be loving his family. And so when I came back to Bible Center this past July, that was something I was looking at with Matt, and I can tell you that we are blessed as a church to have Matt as our lead pastor uh, because he exhibits all of those things. I'm proud to serve alongside of him, and it's an honor that he would ask me to fill in in his absence this morning. Uh, How many of you watch or like basketball? Anybody? Okay, good, good, good. Um, I love the NBA playoffs. So I love sports in general. Just like anything sports, I'm in. Uh, My wife makes fun of me because I don't really watch anything on TV other than sports. So the other day, have you seen this thing called Spikeball? Anybody seen Spikeball? So they had it on ESPN the other day, and I found myself watching it. Why am I watching Spikeball? That doesn't make any sense. But I love sports, and so I played soccer and played basketball all the way through college, uh, and and had a blast doing that. Went to cross lanes and played soccer there. Uh, but I, my favorite time of year is the NBA playoffs. I like it better than college football. I like it better than the NFL. I even like it better than March Madness. Although I really like March Madness, but I love. The NBA playoffs, it's like, it's long, and for a while, it's like every night, and so you get these stories, and you get all this stuff happening, and I just love following the NBA playoffs. And this year, the NBA playoffs have been just as exciting as any other year, because when you get to the playoffs in the NBA, you've had 82 games that these players have played together in many, in many cases. They played together for 82 games and they practiced and they've worked on stuff. And so when you get to the playoffs, they are in scenarios that many times they've been in before. And so they talk about kind of the level of play, just kind of raising a little bit when you get to the playoff, kind of playoff level. And so you get into the playoffs and you find these clutch moments you know buzzer beaters and plays that are designed by coaches that are really executed well because they're past all the learning and getting to know each other and they've been really kind of going through tough stuff all year and then when they get to the playoffs they're in these really really high pressure situations really high pressure situations but yet they respond in the clutch and you know the people that are going to do it because you kind of you watch him and you get to that spot in the game where you're like okay this is a clutch moment and they got that guy and he just does like he just always responds he always makes the shot or he always makes the play and you watch throughout their career as they get even better and better and better and better at that so I had a I had a moment in my basketball career I call it a single moment it was not necessarily what you would call incredible at basketball and I went to Appalachian Bible College for college and so I played basketball there and our team was not what you would call incredible either uh, we were kind of middle of the pack and so we would we would many evenings uh, in the gym we would get beat handily uh, as we were playing basketball but it was fun and I got to see a lot of the country um, and play sports. And so, but there was one night in particular, we were in Beckley and we were playing a team from Tennessee that had beaten us by about 30 points earlier in the year. And so you're going into the night going, okay, what what is this gonna be? But that night, this is why you play the game, that night we were on fire. Like we were absolutely on fire. And so everything we were were throwing up at the basket was going in. And so we were neck and neck with this team all the way through the entire game, kind of back and forth and we were hanging with this team that was so much better than us. So we get to the end of the game and the score's tied and they foul one of our guys. And so one of our guys goes to the free throw line and he makes both foul shots. So we're up two points with just a few seconds left on the clock. So they inbound the ball and their point guard, he's a left-handed guy, I still remember because I had to guard him, I still remember. He's left-handed, he comes streaking down the floor and he stops right at the three-point line. His foot was over the line, by the way. He takes the shot, left-handed shot, swish, and the ref goes like this, three-point shot. It wasn't a three, but they gave him three points for the shot, so they're up one point. Now we've been playing out of our mind the whole game. It was just so deflating. So the gym kind of goes quiet because it's in our gym, and they're all celebrating, and we look up at the clock and there are .4 seconds left on the clock, Point four, less than a second. So my roommate, uh, Jason May was his name. He grabs the ball and he takes it out of bounds because that was his role. He did that every time. He grabs the ball as it comes through the net, he takes it out of bounds. And my job, when the shot went up, that I was supposed to start to drift to the other end of the floor. So if we were going to get a fast break, I was going to be the guy that was going to get the ball. And so I just kind of naturally, because I'd done it forever, just started drifting to the other end of the floor. So Jason takes the ball out of bounds. He's looking around. People are screaming at him. They're going crazy because they made this shot. And he throws the ball the full length of the court. You're with me, aren't you? (laughs) I jump in the air. You can imagine this was a long time ago. I jump in the air and I catch the ball. And in the air, I turn and I shoot the ball and it bounces off the backboard and goes in and the buzzer sounds and we win the game. 0. 0.4 seconds. I was gonna say, somebody should clap for that. <laughs> Even though it was 20 years ago, come on. It was my shining moment in basketball. But how do those moments happen? How do those moments take place? How do we watch the playoffs and we see these moments happening where, where these players respond in these huge pressure situations? where cities are are waiting and wanting them to come through in the clutch. Well, we're gonna talk about that today. Resilience is not earned in low pressure environments. The top of your notes says resilience is not earned in low pressure environments. Those players have gone through all kinds of stuff, blood, sweat, and tears throughout the whole season to get ready for that moment. If you threw them in that moment without that process, then they're not gonna respond favorably in that process. But they've gone through all that season and so they're ready for that moment. They've got the outcome of resilience. We're gonna go to Acts chapter four to look at how resilience was a characteristic of the early church So if you have your Bible, if you have your app and you want to open to Acts chapter four, we're going to be in Acts chapter four today. we're going to look at how resilience was true of the early church and why was it true of the early church? Acts chapter 4 verses 1 through four. Why don't we stand for the reading of God's word? So the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. This is the word of the Lord, you may be seated. So to set the scene for you, Acts two, we've got kind of the, the Pentecost. and Acts three, we have Peter and John, then healing a lame man. And so you kind of remember that story where it was silver and gold, have I none, but such as I have, give I thee in the name of Jesus Christ. Stand up and walk, that was my Sunday school version of what took place in Acts chapter three. So that's the context. And so Peter is preaching and he's preaching in the city. So the church is, is rapidly growing. The most recent number we have is 3,000 for the church growing. Now look at the end of that section. You kind of see what the church is going through right now. It says, they seized Peter and John and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day but many who heard the message believed. Now that doesn't seem like a statement that would follow they put them in jail, right? That seems a little off or a little different. They put them in jail, but many believed. And so here we have the church growing to estimates are about 10,000, maybe a little more than 10,000 people. So what started as a small group of people has now become a movement in this city. And even though Peter and John are thrown in jail, there are many that are believing. So the contrast there is interesting. Most all in churches, including the early church, have gone through suffering in order to gain resilience. They've gone through hardship in order to gain resilience. They've gone through difficulty in order to gain resilience. Resilience. They've gone through it personally. In this room, there are many of us who have gone through very, very difficult seasons in our life, and they've gone through it collectively. In the history of Bible Center, there are moments and seasons of hard things, or difficult seasons. Most all in churches have gone through suffering in order to help us be resilient. See, resilience is an outcome It's something that happens after something else takes place. And God in many cases will use suffering to draw us to him, make us more like him and to bring himself more glory. We're gonna walk through this chapter this morning, Acts chapter four. And we're gonna see how this early church was rooted in truth and how out of that truth, out of that foundation, they responded with resilience. So the first thing there in your outline, number one, suffering is common. Suffering is common. Move forward to verse eight. So we're the next day. Peter and John have spent the night in jail, and now they're back in front of the religious leaders, and Peter just keeps preaching. Verse 80, says, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame, and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Why would mankind need saving? So Peter is preaching and he's saying, you need saving. So why would mankind need saving? To understand this, we've got to go all the way back to the beginning. Genesis 1, 2, and 3 give us the account of Creation. So God created the world, and he didn't create it full of hardship. He didn't create it full of suffering. He didn't create it broken. He created it perfect, beautiful, and in harmony. He created it that way. And he gave us one rule. He said, don't eat off the tree in the middle of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, or else you will surely die. So the tempter comes along and he says, you know, God's just holding out on you. He doesn't want you to know what he knows. He doesn't want you to be like him. And so in a moment, sin broke everything. So God created it perfect. And then sin entered into the world. And it broke our relationship with God. It broke our relationship with each other. And suffering came into the world. Blood and sweat, tears happened, and toil happened. There was punishment that took place there was expulsion from the garden and so Peter is aware of this and Peter knows that every person standing in front of him to them suffering was a common thing just like it is for us it's human to suffer it's human to go through hardship it's human to go through difficulty it's human to go through loss it's just part of us we all share that And so this church was in tune with that. They knew that suffering was common, that it was a commonality among people. And so Peter is preaching to that group of people and he's saying there's salvation in Christ. This person who you just crucified has brought you salvation. You can now know God. You can have a restored relationship with God. Through Jesus because I know all of the brokenness that exists so this church had set their expectations in the right spot they knew that suffering was coming and so when it did it didn't surprise them It wasn't something that necessarily caught them off guard. These people had lives, and they had stuff that they were going through, and they had family things, and it it wasn't like they just lived in this little bubble. But it was common among them, and so they had set their expectations accordingly. You know, this morning, Jesus' salvation is still available to you, and so if you find yourself ready to make that decision immediately following a service, just to your right, there'll be a prayer room open and you can make that decision to put your faith and your trust in Christ this morning as well, just like this group of people did so many years ago. Suffering is common. The second thing that we see that is true, suffering is subject to sovereignty Suffering is subject to sovereignty, verse 23. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God, sovereign Lord, they said. You made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke through the Holy Spirit, Through the mouth of your servant, our father David, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They, that group of people, did what your... God, power, and will had decided beforehand should happen. Suffering is subject to sovereignty. So not only was this church aware that suffering was common, that it was true, that it was going to happen to them because they were people and they were living in a broken world, they also were aware and they understood and they rested in the fact that suffering was subject to the sovereignty of of God. That's a hard one. It's tough. I struggle with that one. I'm sure you do. It wrestles control away. It wrestles control away from us. It it also in many ways it kind of hits at our opinion of what God is allowed to do. I don't like that part. The greatest good in all the universe is God. God is relentlessly about his own glory. Let that sink in. The greatest good in all of the universe is God. And God is relentlessly about his own glory. God is about God because it's the greatest good in all of the universe, it doesn't mean that God is not for you or that God does not love you or that God is not with you or that God is not wanting to pour out his kindness and his riches and his abundant love all over you. That doesn't mean that that's not true, but it does mean that that fits inside of the umbrella of God's sovereignty and that God is ultimately about God. And there's great rest in the middle of that. See, one of the narratives throughout the entirety of scripture is God being for himself. In Isaiah chapter 43, we see that we are created for his glory. In Romans chapter 9, he appoints Pharaoh so that he might display his power in him and that God's name would be proclaimed in all the earth. In Ezekiel 20, he brought Israel out of Egypt for the sake of his name. In 2 Samuel 7, David is told that Solomon will build a house for his name. In 1 Samuel 12, he will not reject his people for the sake of his great name. In Ezekiel 36, the Lord tells Israel that he will save Israel for the sake of his holy name. In Matthew 5:16, your good deeds bring glory to the Father who is in. Heaven in First Peter two twelve, good deeds among people who don't know Christ will bring glory to God. In John fourteen, Jesus will do what is asked of him so that the Father may gain glory. John chapter twelve, Jesus says, Father, through me glorify your name. In Romans three twenty five and twenty six, God gave Jesus to demonstrate His own righteousness. And in John chapter nine. Jesus says of the blind man being born blind that it was not his sin that caused it but so the works of God might be displayed in him. Suffering lives under the umbrella and under the banner of the sovereignty of God and that should give us great rest because God is good, and He's love, and He's kind. But ultimately, God is for God. So the early church was in tune with those truths. And so as suffering started to surround them, as they're part of this movement, they're realizing these things are true. And so what do they do? What do they do? Number three, suffering causes change. Suffering causes change. Verse 29. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. So Peter and John have come back to the group of believers. They've been released from, from prison, and they're sharing what's going on. And now they get together and they start praying. There's lots of things they could have prayed for. But here's what they pray for. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly or resiliently. Look at how Peter has changed as he's gone through these things, that he's been put in these, these pressure-filled environments, these hardships. You go all the way back to, right, when Jesus is going to the cross and Peter's denying him, saying, I'm not with that guy. The disciples have scattered. Confusion is everywhere, and Peter's saying, I'm not with that guy. I'm not with that guy. I'm not with that guy. And then fast-forward a few chapters, and he's coming out of jail, continuing to preach and praying for boldness to preach more. Same person. But he had become aware of that truth and he was being changed. Suffering changes us. You don't go through suffering and come out on the other side, the same person. You don't go through hardship or difficulty and come out on the other side the same person, we change. We might get bitter. We might say, I I don't deserve that. I didn't deserve that coming at me. What did I do to make that happen in my life? Why don't I have what they have? Or we might get bitter or we might grow we might change to become more like Christ. But our, our suffering will change us. We figure out ways to cope, figure out ways to deal with things. Put yourself in that situation. Let's imagine for a second that uh, Matt's here and not me and the police come in and they arrest him and they arrest the rest of the staff. And they say, John, we're gonna let you stay free but we want you to do some stuff. And they take all of us to jail. It's happening around the world right now. How are we going to respond in that moment? Are we going to gather together and pray for boldness to continue to preach? Or are we going to scatter? Are we going to say, you know, that church thing's just not worth it. I'm going to go to the lake instead. How are we going to respond? Because that's the shoes that they were walking in. Suffering will change us. Is your suffering causing you to become more or less like Christ? Number four, suffering unites. Suffering unites. So suffering was changing this group of people, but they're in tune with that truth. It's also uniting them. Verse 32, all the believers were one in heart and mind. And no one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. It didn't just connect them as friends. It didn't just connect them as loose acquaintances. There was something about this that was different. They were one. There was a oneness. You remember in John 17, as Jesus is preparing to go to the cross, he prays for this. He says, I pray that they will be one as you and I are one. And this church is exhibiting that oneness. They're deeply connected. They're sharing everything they had. There's oppression all around them. There's an occupying force in their country. Their leaders are being thrown in jail, but yet they're drawn to each other under the banner of Christ. This is why we press you into groups. We should be doing life together. We should be doing life together. Fifth thing, suffering sets us free. Suffering sets us free. Verse 33 of chapter four. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them that there were no needy persons among them. Suffering sets us free to change our perspective, to lift our eyes from what is temporary to what is eternal. We start to see past the circumstances that are just here and just now. And we start to look at the world through different lenses. We start to become in tune with what God is doing in the world and how I can be part of that. It's why in James, in James chapter 1, he says, Count it joy when you fall into trial, knowing that when you do, it's producing endurance or it's producing resilience. The testing of your faith is producing resilience. But then there's a promise attached to that. He says, if you don't understand, ask for wisdom and he'll give it to you. And wisdom is the ability to see the world the way that God sees the world. It's not that I get smarter. It's that I start to think with an eternal mindset. And so my circumstances start to be real, but yet temporary. Temporary because I'm not living for the next 20 years, I'm living for the next 3 million years. And so even when grief comes, I can still have joy. Even when sorrow comes, I can still have joy. Even when sadness or loss or difficulty comes, I can still have joy because I know that I'm part of God's mission in this world. And I'm living my life according to that. And it sets me free. Jesus didn't promise us that we'd have a world without problems. He actually said you will have a world with problems, but take heart because I've overcome. So this church was responding with freedom. In the book, Glorious Ruin, the author writes, because of Jesus' finished work for me, I have justification, approval, acceptance, security, freedom, affection, cleansing, new beginning, righteousness, and rescue. I don't have to prove anything or impress anyone. I can be okay with not being okay. I don't have to control what others will think of me or look like I can handle everything. I'm free to be honest with others, myself, and with God. So even though everything was swirling around this early church, life was chaos. They were experiencing a freedom like they had never experienced before. You know, there's another narrative that carries through scripture. God being for God and for his own glory and for his own name carries throughout the entirety of scripture. But alongside of that, there's a truth that in the middle of all this, God is with us. God is with us. So whatever you're going through today, it's real. It's present in your life, but God is with us. He's not left us to deal with this on our own, but he's with us. You know, in the garden, in Eden, the writer of Genesis says that God would come and he would walk with Adam and Eve in the cool of the evening. You know, my favorite time of evening is right after the sun sets, but it's not dark yet. You sit out on the porch, you hear the birds singing. The cool of the evening kind of settles in. It feels like creation starts to settle in for the night. You imagine if you're sitting on your porch and sitting in your rocking chair, maybe you got a big glass of lemonade and, and God walks up and he sits down beside you and you just talk about the day. Life. That's Eden. That was the relationship. It was perfect. It was good. It was harmony. love. After sin came into the world, those nightly visits in Eden stopped. That relationship was broken. Even in the midst of that brokenness though, God never left. Punishment came, suffering came, difficulty came, but God's presence remained. As you go through the Old Testament, you see him. You see him with Abraham. You see him with Isaac. You see him wrestling with Jacob in the night. You see him with Joseph in the well and then the jail and leading a country. You see him acting through Moses. You see him as a pillar of fire at night. You see him as a cloud during the day leading his people. You see him in the beauty of the law, dwelling in the Ark of the Covenant, the tabernacle and the temple. You see him represented in judges and prophets and kings moving among the people. He's with us in exile through Daniel on the furnace with those three weaving this grand story of redemption. He shows up on the earth and walks the earth again as Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus born through a person. He lives the perfect life and he dies the perfect death so that we can know God, so our relationship can be restored. He continues to be with us through the Holy Spirit, empowering his people and empowering his church, no longer subject to location, but in dwelling individuals, He's with us. He's making all things new. And then ultimately, God restores us, not only spiritually, but physically and emotionally as well. Revelation 21, we see that picture. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and first earth has passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride a new life. And that church, that all in church in Acts chapter 4 was aware of that, confident of that, focused on the mission that God had left them. In a moment, you're going to hear a song about how God is making all things new. Allow it to just minister to your soul. And then we're going to sing a song that has meant a great deal to me in my journey, in my life, about how God provides strength to me each moment. The early church allowed their circumstances, their suffering, their hardship, their difficulty to press them deeper and deeper and deeper into mission. Let's pray that it's so here as well. Will you pray with me? God, we give you glory and we give you praise because you alone are worthy of that. We praise you for the truth of your word and how it can apply to our life. We praise you that you wanna come into these moments and that you wanna change us, make us more confident in you. And you wanna set us free to live in the plans that you have and what you're doing in the world that you've given us this incredible purpose to be part of. And I pray as we face suffering that we would face it together, united But it would draw us deeper into mission and grow us more into the image of Christ. Thank you for what you're doing in and through us. In Jesus' name.